It's arguably probably the most challenging part of our job and, and also part of the most necessary. Um, a lot of our cancers are not curative and, and eventually the disease is going to outlast our, our treatments. And we're not doing our job, in my opinion, if we don't prepare clients for that as early as possible. From the Texas Veterinary Medical Association in Austin, Texas, this is Veterinary Vitals, a show that features open and honest conversations with veterinary professionals. Dina Goldstein, the previous host of Veterinary Vitals, has taken a position elsewhere. She did such a great job with the podcast and she will be missed. I'm your new host, Audrea Wood, the media specialist at TVMA. As a pet owner that's new to the world of veterinary medicine, when I think of oncology, animals don't come to mind. Part of that is because I've never had an animal with cancer. I grew up on land outside of Houston, and we always had chickens, dogs, cats, guinea pigs, a pretty good variety of animals to care for and play with. And while they had their issues, cancer was never one of them, at least not that we knew. So I was surprised to learn about cancer in animals from Dr. Zachary Wright. Dr. Wright was raised in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. He attended the University of Notre Dame, where he earned his Bachelor of Arts degree in history. In 2004, Dr. Wright graduated from Texas A&M University College of Veterinary Medicine with a veterinary medical degree. In 2008, he became a diplomat of the American College of Veterinary Internal Medicine Oncology. After his residency, Dr. Wright worked with VCA Veterinary Care in Albuquerque, New Mexico to assist in opening their new oncology practice. In 2012, he was given the opportunity to move back to the Dallas-Fort Worth area and join VCA Animal Diagnostic Clinic, where he's the director of oncology. Hello, Dr. Wright. So to get started, I would love to know how you figured out that you were interested in working with animals. I, it's a great question, Andrea. It's, it, unfortunately, it's a pretty cliched answer. Um, in that I, to hear my parents tell it, this is the only job I was supposed to do. Um, a lot of kids, a lot of toddlers carried around, you know, support blankets and I carried around a plastic horse. Um, and, and so at least that's what my mom tells me. Um, and, and so working with animals is really the only thing I, I ever verbalized that I wanted to do. It's the only kind of thing that they steered me to. And um, I, I'd never really explored anything else. Ah, that is amazing. I wish I was a child that knew exactly what I wanted to do from the start, but um, I think that's something we're all still kind of figuring out as we go, right? Yeah, you know, that, that's okay. Sometimes I tell them, I, at least for my kids, I want them to explore what other options they were out there. How in the world, how in the world are we sure I was right when I was five? Right. Right. Um, so you, you need to still make sure you kind of uncover all the or look under all the rocks to make sure that the career choice you're uh, you're selecting is the right fit. That's so true. So I did do a little research before our call, and I guess I would like to know what it's like to be married to another veterinarian. Yeah, <laughs> I, you know, I think there, there, there's good and bad. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think after a hard day's work, no matter what you do, you don't always want to come home to talk about it, right? Um, mm -hmm. Especially you don't want to hear somebody else's day went worse, right? <laughs> and so when we, when we both have rough days, I think that's, that's hard for us emotionally. Um, at, at the same time, we do different things in the field. So there is a little bit of learning from your spouse when you talk about your days. Mm. Um, but we also get to kind of cut through the fluff. You know, I, I don't have to explain w the, the good things of my day or the struggles that we had. Um, we can speak the language of veterinary, veterinary medicine a lot more effectively. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so it, that really helps when you're communicating with someone because they, for lack of a better word, they get you. Right. right. So. So that part is nice. That sounds really nice, but I, I hear what you're saying. It could pretty easily turn into coming out from work and getting into the details of your days a little bit too easily instead of having some quality family time, right? Right, 
Right. They're, they're, we don't need veterinary medicine in our lives 24-7. Um, and so we have to be a little bit cognizant of that because we can always get more of it when we're talking to each other. And sometimes we just need to be a family instead. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, so how did you come to oncology? I, I, when I, when I was in vet school, I didn't know that specialty medicine existed. Um, I thought I was going to be a mixed animal practitioner because I, I loved the, the, the differences and what a, a, a routine day would provide. Um, but I, I kind of understood or learned as a, later in my vet school path that there were, there was an opportunity to specialize, um, and for me, there's a couple points of it. Number one, I think it's a, the hardest job in our profession is to be a great primary care veterinarian, to be great at everything. Mm-hmm. It's really, really challenging. And there were parts of it that I was not good at. And I, I think I had a self, enough self-awareness to know that. Um, the, the, the other issue for me is that oncology was really exciting. Um, it, there's not a lot of right answers. It's it's really the last frontier, um, so to speak, and there's a lot of room for creativity. But it also then allowed a, allowed me to kind of develop longstanding relationships with clients that primary care practice gets, right? I don't take dogs from puppyhood to, to end of life, um, mm-hmm. but I do have an extended relationship with them more so than you do with some of the other specialties. So when you kind of added all that up, it, it made the most sense for me. Oh, I see. So is that what you love about oncology, that you get to work with certain animals on a longer term basis? Um, or is it kind of experimenting and finding the right treatment for their specific disease? What is it that you really enjoy about the job? I, I think the part, Audrey, that I get the most satisfaction from is when a client comes to see me and their preconceived notions of what um, their pet's cancer means and what their pet's therapy means is, is frankly wrong. Um, and we, we educate them um, to, so that they fully understand what is happening. And that doesn't always necessarily mean a better outcome. Um, sometimes it's the opposite, that they think this is an easily curable condition and that's not the case. But, mm-hmm. but again, we, a successful relationship is we provided them the the knowledge and the understanding of what's happening to their pets so that they can make the right choices. Cause without that knowledge, they can't make the right choices. Um, and that's really satisfying to me. Again, it doesn't always have to be the the cases that live longer than you thought they would. Um, it's that the client didn't really have an understanding of what's going on or, and what we were able to do. And we corrected that. Hmm. So you must have to spend a good amount of time with, the patient's owners just to go over all of the possibilities and different treatment options. It's a huge part of our day. We That's why our appointment schedules are, at least in our practice, are 60 to 90 minutes because wow. we can't possibly teach a client everything there is to know about their pet's cancer in a 15 minute block. I frankly don't think we can explain much of any disease, um, but, but with cancer and, and the, um, and the severity uh, and gravity of the de- decisions these clients have to make, they, they need more time to get all of those details. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. It's a big decision. So you're currently at VCA Animal Diagnostic Clinic. Uh, what is special about VCA Diagnostic Clinic? I, there's a lot that's special about it. Uh, it it's why it's, it's the longest job of my life. Uh, (laughs) So there's number one, Dallas is my home. I grew up in the suburbs and and it was always a goal to come back and and help the the community or at least serve the community that I grew up in. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a special draw there. The the, the practice itself, um, every practice that can say this right, but it's about the people. you can have fancy equipment and fancy spaces, but but the people are what makes this work. And and I'm blessed to work with a um, a very diverse and very talented group of veterinarians, and, and just as importantly, um, staff. That the, the staff are the the hidden foundation of of what veterinary medicine is, and we don't do what we do here without them. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I, I'm grateful for that. It makes it easy to be content at a job like this. 
Um, from the VCA perspective, um, VCA is a, a, a large company that, that has a lot of resources, and that became even more so the case when uh, we were acquired by Mars a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but but it, they are, are pushing the envelope in terms of the resources that are available to us as employees, but also as clinicians. And, and that means being able to bring more diagnostic and therapeutic options to clients um, that I didn't always have um, in some of my other situations. Ah, okay. I think I read somewhere online that at VCA, there is a board, I think I think it was, or a group of doctors that can weigh, on, weigh in on particular cases. Um, and, you know, I think that's fantastic. When I think of going to the doctor, I don't think of having the expertise of many different doctors um, whenever I need help. So I can imagine that that would just open up so many possibilities for creativity and brainstorming, uh, tapping others' histories and resources to really create a custom treatment plan for each individual. Well, thanks for bringing attention to that, Audrey. I I completely agree. I I chair um, the National um, VCA Pet Cancer Care Alliance, and I think that's what you're referencing, and that um, Mm -hmm. it's it's, um, been a growing alliance over the last three years with with a lot of responsibilities. But one of those responsibilities is that we um, form a more cohesive collaboration for all the oncologists within our company. Um, Mm -hmm. So that your point that when a client walks into a door to our facility and has a challenging case, the oncologist in front uh, of that pet can say, this is what I think, but I have a network available to me with 60 to 80 oncologists at any given time who have probably seen something similar. And, and I'm going to tap that knowledge base and brain trust. Um, and we're going to come up with a, a more tailored approach for, for your pet, even if I haven't don't have any personal experience with that, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so we, we're building the infrastructure to make that collaboration easy and seamless. Um, and and we when we hire new oncologists, kind of our pitch is you're not going to be alone um, on an island. You're going to have all of these resources available to you because that's a lot of the human models when you look at um, elite cancer centers like um, the Mayo Clinic and, and things like that, that, right, that they have satellite um, branches and all the doctors get to communicate so that they can get a more cohesive or more unanimous treatment plan available to that patient in front of them. Well, that is fantastic. I love to hear that. I can imagine how invaluable it must be to have so many different people with different experience and, and history weighing in on a particular case. One thing I wanted to ask you about is the advancements in oncology. Um, I did a little bit of research and saw that you guys actually had some great things happen last year. So that is remarkable. You had a good 2020. I was going to say, we, we got we got pretty lucky in spite of COVID, in spite of COVID that we right. had, uh, had some good breakthroughs and and. And our side of the veterinary universe. <laughs> yes, amazing. So tell me a little bit about some great things, maybe uh, new treatments, research, discoveries that came out last year. Sure. So, you know, there, there's, um, I think, a, f- a few things to talk about, um, both diagnostically and therapeutically. Um, diagnostically, there's a couple of companies that are looking at the genetic profiling of a tumor. Um, you, we know that um, all cancer, while we may call it the same thing, the way it affects each individual can be unique. Um, mm-hmm. And there's often genetic mutations that can explain that, um, as well as unique mutations that may make a therapy more or less effective in each individual. And, and that's um, really what we mean when we refer to personalized medicine and where human medicine and veterinary medicine are both headed. Um, mm-hmm. Human medicine obviously is, is ahead of us in that regard. But again, a couple of companies that are looking at being able to take um, the genetic profile of a specific tumor and provide a clinician information about various mutations that mm-hmm. may be either prognostic for the client's value um, or therapeutic targets. And we can then 
kind of select drugs that would be more appropriate that we might not have considered um, without this kind of testing. So that that really allows us to treat when you bring your fluffy in to see us, we're going to treat your dog a very unique way. Um, and mm-hmm. we're again in the beginning stages of this, but but these companies are kind of helping us um, drive that concept and it's only going to become more prevalent. Ah, that's fantastic. So kind of back to that custom treatment plan that we talked about. So for example, if there were a dog to come in presenting with skin cancer or, um, you know, a mast cell tumor, are there any new treatments, any new drugs that can be used to assist in these cases? Yeah, I think there's, I think there's a new drug that everybody wants to talk about, um, and, and let me, before I dive into it, let, I'd be remiss to say, while we're going to talk a lot about dogs, I suspect, um, for a little bit, uh, it doesn't mean we're ignoring cats. It just means that a lot of the breakthroughs have been canine specific. Um, we, we know as oncologists that we have work to do to, to bring similar um, therapies to, to our cat patients as well. I just don't want people to think that we're ignoring them today in our, in our talk. Okay. Um, that I think the drug that people are, are, are most excited about and terrified about at the same time uh, is, a, is the drug Stelfanta. Um, it's by a, a startup company out of Australia called Cubiotics, um, mm-hmm. and it's distributed by Verbeck, which is a, 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 big, um, a big player in, in, the, in veterinary medicine and drug distribution. So, but I think this is their first uh, uh, dalliance in, um, in, in cancer therapy. So I think we're all learning from this. But Celfante mm-hmm. is um, a, an intralesional therapy that we inject directly into specifically mast cell tumors in dogs. So it's not really approved or indicated yet for any other tumor types. Um, mast cell tumors are, are really the most common cancer that we see in an oncology practice, but frankly, in, in primary care practice and in the profession as a whole. So we see a lot of this and it's generally a surgical disease and surgery can have a really favorable outcome, but there are um, growing situations where surgery isn't really practical. Um, and maybe that's a dog has five new mast cell tumors and has already had five surgeries and the clients are just tired of tired of that cost and, and more importantly, effect on their dog. Um, maybe the dog has pretty serious heart disease and is a, is a strong anesthetic risk. So additional surgery doesn't make sense. Or, mm. or maybe it's a, it's a tumor up that doesn't make surgery practical. It's, it's simply in too difficult or awkward of a location or of a size where we're not sure that surgery is going to provide us the benefit. Right. So Telefonte is a drug where we inject this drug into the tumor. It's not a chemotherapy um, agent, uh, but it does essentially cause cell death and necrosis uh, of the tumor pretty profoundly. Um, and then it causes after the tumor uh, after the tumor dies, it leaves quite the defect in in our patient. And I think that's the hardest thing for for us as veterinarians to get comfortable with. We we've spent careers and lifetimes learning how to manage wounds, um, and we do bandage changes, and we do um, you know surgical honey, and we do wet to dry, so we do hydrotherapy, and we do antibiotics and pain medications, and all these various modalities and we do lots of e-collars right to prevent dogs from 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 self-trauma mm-hmm. um, and none of that's really indicated it's rather remarkable and it's hard to sit still in your chair and say no to your instincts when you're taking care of these patients but as that wound forms we don't prescribe e-collars we don't prescribe pain medications as a general rule maybe for a couple of days but we don't prescribe antibiotics there's evidence that that this drug has antibiotic properties as, w- as well as wound healing properties. Um, and we encourage the, the dogs to lick this open wound, which, again, we would fail our, our surgical classes as vet students if we made those recommendations. Um, right. So it, it's a paradigm shift. Um, and that's the word that, that this company has used as well. Um, it's a steep learning curve. Uh, and, and I've I've been fortunate enough to treat a few dogs already, and um, and I, it, it, no matter how prepared I thought I was, some of these wounds were uh, were still eye opening. And no matter how I thought I prepared the clients, they have told me they were not prepared for this, and I need to do a better job at 
and explaining um, what we're all in for. But mm. we uh, we stayed the course. We trust the sources. We, we trust what QBiotics and Verbeck told us. And, and lo and behold, the, these dogs are responding the way um, we were told they would. Again, without any of the excessive wound care, um, and these wounds are, are making full recoveries. And we believe, well, it's too early for my clinical experience to, to, um, to confirm this, but the early, early data published by, by the company would suggest that we're going to have very, very consistent and very favorable long-term, long-term excuse me, tumor control that would be just as effective as surgery. Um, again, we, wow. we, we treated thousands upon thousands of mast cell tumors in this country um, with surgery. We, we can't compare dozens yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but but the results are encouraging enough that we should we can consider this when surgery it isn't a viable option for these patients. Ah, that's so interesting. So you're essentially injecting Stelfanta directly into the tumor, and then it is shrinking or creating sort of a wound that you let naturally heal. Very cool. Um, what is it about Stelfanta that you know, makes it so effective? Well, you, you know, the, the, the mechanism of action is that it, that it can, it can have that direct um, toxic effect uh, to, to the tumor cells. Um, but, but in, in terms of the, uh, to answer your question in terms of what's making it so effective, um, you know, I don't, I don't know that we have that answer right now. Uh, oh. I, I think in, and what I want to be careful with is it's not, it's such a new drug. Um, it's not a replacement for surgery, right? We, we, that is still our gold standard. And we believe surgery is, is still most appropriate because one of, one of the things that's important here is a huge way we, we manage mast cell tumors in dogs is based on the biopsy results that we get from a surgery, right? We send that to a pathologist and we get some really valuable information for the client in terms of prognosis and and further treatment recommendations. And if you inject a tumor and kill it all, um, you don't get any of that information. And so there's a huge gap in our ability to medically manage these dogs that we're having to learn. It's a it's a it's a new process for us. And there are some workarounds that we can do. There's some cytologic or um, psychology attempts to to give us some of that information, but that hasn't been fully validated compared to biopsies. So, you know, I want to, I want to be cautious with your question about what makes it so effective. Mm -hmm. It it is effective. It's again, it's mechanism is, 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 has been proven to be effective. And clinically the cases I've done, I've made tumors disappear. Um, Mm -hmm. But, but I don't think it has become, I, or let me rephrase, I'd be very cautious to consider this in a practice as, as my first line therapy for a mast cell tumor. I think we okay. are we are probably a long time away uh, of that being the case because it needs to be all those gaps that we just referenced need to be filled in. And frankly, it needs to be very aggressively compared to our standard of care. And I don't know that we've gotten to that point yet. Okay. Now, you had mentioned that you were collecting data on some outcomes, which I know that you do in general um, for many reasons, but are you doing clinical trials um, for Stelfanta? Because I know I saw on your website that you do participate in some clinical trials. Um, so you're you're absolutely correct. We we have a growing clinical trial department in our hospital, um, but we were not part of the Stelfanta clinical trial that was primarily done in in primary care practices, kind of across the United States. Um, the, in, in full disclosure, I, um, serve on their scientific advisory board and there's been some discussions about, um, some additional trials of Stelfonte in the hands of some oncologists, but nothing's been finalized yet. Um, so no, I, I had no experience with this drug until, um, it hit the proverbial shelf and was FDA approved uh, earlier this year. Okay. Well, I'm glad it's turned out to be so helpful. Um, have there been any other breakthroughs or, you know, new drugs that you think might dramatically change how you practice oncology? Um, good question. I th- let's let's break that up, if you don't mind. In the, sure. in the first the first part of the question, the, the answer is 
the answer is yes. And that there's a, also a new drug that's um, recently been approved. It's called um, Lavertia. It's from a new startup company, um, Anavive. And it's the, the first drug of its class. It's called a sign inhibitor. Um, I think I believe there's one one similar drug um, in, in human medicine um, that Laverti is related to. But again, the first of its kind in veterinary medicine, it is labeled for canine lymphoma. And the nice part is it's an oral pill. Okay. Um, and so we, I, before you ask, we are not a part of that clinical trial. So I have um, minimal clinical experience um, with it. But, but the benefit here is that it's an oral drug with a very low toxicity spectrum. Um, that is going to be a nice option for clients who don't have the interest of, or ability to pursue the more traditional multi-agent chemotherapy protocols that we do for lymphoma, which is a really common cancer that we see. Um, and, and for those patients, we used to simply prescribe um, high-dose steroids or prednisone. And, and now we have a drug that's more lymphoma-specific than prednisone that, that um, again, similar to Stolafanta, the early data would suggest does buy some additional time compared to prednisone, but is a fairly well tolerated um, and, in my opinion, fairly affordable res uh, option for, for clients who want to do a little bit more. So lymphoma is such a common disease that I think that that drug is going to help a lot of a lot of people who never, frankly, come to an oncologist for the more traditional or aggressive protocols. And that's OK. Um, I think all of us signed up for this uh, for this profession to help pets, and we really don't care who gets the credit. Um, so as long as dogs have an opportunity to live longer with their disease um, by whoever prescribes that, that's a good thing. Absolutely. Uh, I heard of this drug that's being used a little bit more for lymphoma called Tenovia. Um, is that something that you use often? Good, good research, Audrey. Good research. <laughs> So Tenovia um, is actually, let me back up, Laverti is the second FDA-approved drug to fight lymphoma in dogs, and Tenovia was the first. Um, and we were, uh, very we were very much a part of um, a lot of the clinical trials for Tenovia, um, including their pivotal trial to get full, um, uh, full licensure from the FDA. So that, that's a really exciting drug. We've been using it for um, goodness, it's been years now. We have a lot of clinical experience with that. I think it's a wonderful. Mm -hmm. I think it's a wonderful drug. Um, it's a traditional chemotherapy, and that it is an IV or intravenous chemotherapy that we give over a slow period of time. Kind of can cause some of the traditional side effects that you think about with chemotherapy. Um, but again, a, a lymphoma-specific drug um, and um, let. Uh, Lymphoma is such a common disease. We need all the breakthroughs that we that we can possibly get. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so let's say we have a dog coming in to your clinic for treatment for lymphoma, and um, you're administering either Tenovia or Lavertia. How do one of these appointments in your clinic go? Do you typically sedate the pet for this IV treatment? So, I, you know, I, I can't speak to other oncology practices except the ones that I've been a part of. Um, we, you know, our, our general workflow is clients come to see us for a consult, like we talked about earlier, for about an hour or so. We answer all their questions, give them all their options, and many clients go home and think about it. And once they've decided what they want, want they what they want to do, excuse me, um, then they bring their pet back. Usually as a drop-off, um, our practice volume is large enough that we found it most efficient. We can help the most animals by, by using a morning drop-off model. So they bring their pets in to, to see us in the morning, and that's they kind of get start with their processing, which is they get an exam, or they get vitals, excuse me, by, by our technical staff. They get an exam by the attending doctor. We pull some in-house blood work to make sure that it's appropriate for treatment. We do a drug calculation, make sure we prescribe the appropriate dose, and then that is um, rechecked and rechecked again to make sure we don't have um, calculation error with chemotherapy. And then they get to start the process of being treated in our chemotherapy suite. Mm -hmm. uh, surprisingly, uh, maybe to you, Audrey, we don't generally sedate or anesthetize the vast majority of our patients. They don't no. need it. Um, mm -hmm. They are, it's a, it's a calming environment where they're getting treated. 
they get an IV catheter, and once the, the discomfort of that needle prick is over, then they're pretty pretty relaxed and, and, and comfortable with what we're doing. The drugs don't cause any discomfort when we're giving it. Um, okay. so they sit there with a couple of our veterinary technicians and, and get their drug over the appropriate amount of time. We remove the catheter, and then they get to go home when their parents can come and get them. I see. Yeah, I was imagining that being a lot more complicated, I guess, because I have a, a dog with a lot of vet-related anxiety. She doesn't like anyone touching her, poking her, prodding her, anything like that. So it's kind of a disaster every time I try to take her to get her nails trimmed. Um, what has been most helpful in these cases for for the pet owners, um, financially speaking? I can imagine that a diagnosis uh, would be pretty surprising for an owner, and I'm sure that treatment could add up over time. Is that something that you've heard concerns from pet owners about, or is that something that's become a little bit more affordable over the years? So just like with the disease process, we want to provide full transparency and give clients all of the information. And so mm -hmm. um, we have a financial department essentially, or our scheduling coordinators who provide clients with all of these estimates. We don't want them to be surprised by anything. Um, mm -hmm. And we want all that information up, up front. So when we give the medical options, we usually provide um, simultaneous financial estimates for this. Um, you know, Audrey, everybody's definition of, of busy is different. Everyone's definition of expensive is different. And so we're not going to judge or presume um, how you feel about a certain dollar value. Right. All of these things do have a cost associated with them, right? Uh, and again, we're going to be transparent about that. Mm -hmm. um, and, and everybody who comes to us has, has different means. And so that, that's another reason why we want to have options so that um, clients know that if they have a limited budget, they can afford an option that makes medical sense for their pet. Um, it, the but, but again, we, we cover all that at the beginning, right? We don't want them to be surprised. The, right. the, the, the growth of uh, pet health insurance, I, I think, is, is interesting. Um, and, and clearly it's growing. And, um, you know, I, I know it's a double-edged sword. I know veterinarians pound the table when we say we don't want the human insurance model coming into our profession. I completely get it. Um, yeah. I also see that um, when clients who have health insurance and they say, do what you need to do for my pet, Dr. Wright, because all of this is covered. Um, that's uh, 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 the word I'm looking for. That's um, that's freeing for those clients. Right. And, and, it, and, and it eliminates one of the hurdles in their decision making. Um, right. And that allows us to do the most we can for their pet. Principally, that's a good thing. I, I can understand the red tape and the things that can leak into our profession that may make a lot of headaches for veterinarians. And I get that. And I think our profession needs to protect against those things. But but principally, um, the if an insurance company is able to provide the financial resources for a pet to get their therapies, and I'm not talking just about cancer therapy, um, all the treatments that animal would need. I think that's a good thing. Mm, no, I totally agree. Um, are you familiar with pet health insurance at all? I, I don't have any for my dog, but I wonder if VCA or other specialty hospitals accept health, pet health insurance and how that works. And sorry, I know you're not the, uh, the health insurance person. <laughs> no, that's okay. Yeah, you know, I, I, I am not the, the pet insurance expert. So um, for our full, full disclosure, m most of what I know about pet insurance is it's on a reimbursement model, right? So mm -hmm. it's easy for us to say yes, because the clients are still paying initially, and then the health, and then the pet insurance is reimbursing them separately. Um, which doesn't get in the way of our, our transaction, right? We don't have these billing issues, again, that, that human medicine is dealing with. So I, I, it makes it pretty easy to accept all of this um, because it's between the client and the insurance company, not the hospital and the insurance company. Gotcha. Um, the, so we, we, we do do that. We, we do offer, um, at least in our hospital, um, you know, there are various payment options. If, if you don't have insurance, we, we work with a company called Care Credit, which can extend essentially a healthcare line of credit. Um, 
and, and there are some other options that are available to clients um, that are probably beyond the scope of, of today's conversation. But, but principally, yeah, we, we, we encourage clients to, to get um, pet insurance because the cancer rate for older dogs is so high that, that the odds are they're going to need that at some point in their pet's life. Right. What age is it that you start seeing cancer cases in dogs, for example? So the, the, the big walk around number, the magic number for us is, is the age of 10. Um, all the statistics would say that um, about one out of five, excuse me, one out of two dogs over the age of 10 are going to develop cancer and potentially as many as one out of four of them are going to die from it. Um, So it can be a very serious condition. It, it ranks up there with heart disease and kidney disease in terms of end of life conditions. Um, so there, and you know, I think that's, that number is only growing because our profession is doing such a great job. There's so many advancements that we, we are, we are preventing um, previously life-threatening diseases like heartworms and, and things of that nature. And dogs are now living long enough that some of this, um, just like in people, becomes a little bit inevitable um, mm. with a cancer diagnosis. Ah, okay. That makes a lot of sense. Well, I have a few other questions, but before we move on, is there anything else that you'd like to share? Well, you know, I think one of the big advancements that's that's not brand new, it's been kind of an evolving um, thing over the last decade is what our radiation therapy is able to do. Um, mm. It is very much what is available in, in the cutting edge human cancer centers now, and that's um, really image guided radiation. So we're, we're using a CAT scan, um, an onboard CAT scan, so a CAT scan built into our radiation machine to really make sure that we're treating um, the tumor and not the surrounding healthy tissue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's, again, what what human medicine is, is doing. Um, and so we, we are able to offer things like stereotactic radiation therapy, um, which allows us to intensify the dose of radiation, um, treat with less doses to, to the patient, which means less anesthesias for, for a dog or cat, less trips mm-hmm. to the hospital, and frankly, less less radiation side effects. And those, those are all good things. Um, that technology is just beginning to become affordable for more and more specialty centers to be able to provide that to, to their clients. So that's a huge breakthrough um, in, in, our, in the way we treat cancer. But again, not happening overnight. It's been a, it's been a gradual process over the last decade or so. Gotcha. That's very interesting. Um, what other testing options do you have available to determine if a patient has uh, lymphoma or leukemia, for example? Most of our diagnostic testing, our, our, our breakthroughs are more on the molecular level. Um, mm. We are, again, from a cancer perspective, we mentioned those, um, those genetic companies. Those are just for the, the listener. Vidium um, and Phytocure are the are the two companies out there that are providing that, and um, and they're able to again look at a genetic signature of, of a tumor, um, and the clinician can use that information to kind of tailor a specific treatment for that pet. That's a that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. There's there's also a new um, screening test that that's out um, for our for the Texas veterinary listeners. It, it launched in Texas and, and is kind of out of a collaborative. Um, effort with uh, some oncology colleagues at Texas A&M that the test is called NUQ, and it's a screening blood test um, for that's been at least er, partially validated for dogs against lymphoma and hemangiosarcoma, two two pretty aggressive diseases that we'd love to identify earlier than we traditionally are able. Um, and so that it's a great it's an option that you know would be available to a lot of veterinarians for. For the clients who have healthy geriatric or senior pets, again, healthy being the operative word, a screening test doesn't work in a really sick animal. Um, and so if for a dog who's wagging its tail and just there for its annual evaluation, maybe that test will help us identify some, um, some cancers earlier. I, I don't know of a cancer um, where if we find it earlier, the outcome is worse, right? So early detection re- really is, is to everyone's benefit. And and maybe this is a test that will that will help us identify some of those patients earlier. 
Uh, that is fantastic. Uh, what about immunotherapy? I heard about, I want to say, Elias or Elias immunotherapy cancer treatment. Are you familiar with that? Elias? Yep. yep. I, I'm very familiar with Elias. I, I think they're, they're doing some great work. Um, you know, broad, broad or general strokes uh, about immunotherapy, it, it, it makes sense that if we can reprogram or, or harness our immune system to start fighting the cancer, um, number one, it can probably be more effective than all of the all of the drugs that we create. It's just so much smarter than than our than our medications that we wow. deliver. Um, but but also it can be cancer specific. You know, chemotherapy and radiation can um, can can affect the healthy cells, uh, kind of in the blast radius, so to speak. So so yeah, so you have some um, some negative effects. But immunotherapy has the potential to be more tumor specific and, 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 and train our immune system to only go and attack the, the cancer cells that they identify. Right. And, and mm-hmm. so um, I, it's a, it's a big, it's a, it's a, a very popular term right now. And there's a, a lot of research um, in immunotherapy, not just for malignancies or cancers, but for autoimmune conditions and, and, and various, various things. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of breakthroughs in it. Um, and, and to me, immunotherapy with cancer is, 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 is still a piece of the puzzle. Um, mm-hmm. I, I hope my career goes long enough for us to see easy cancer cures. I'm not, I don't know that right. I have the optimism that immunotherapy is the silver bullet. Mm-hmm. Um, we thought we've had a lot of silver bullets that, that again, turn out to just be a tool in a toolbox. Um, and right. that's okay. We, we need all of those tools, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but to speaking more specifically to Elias, they're, they're doing some, um, some great work where they essentially take, take a, a tumor, um, or tumor tissue that, a that a veterinarian would harvest. Um, they modify it, uh, and turn it into what we call an autologous vaccine. So we kind of re-inject that tumor back into the dog and, and we hope their immune system recognizes that. And there's a lot of companies that, that stop there. Um, Elias takes it to another level where, there's, there's a more labor-intensive um, protocol where we essentially filter the dog's blood um, and, and harvest out very particular white blood cells um, that we then send back to that lab to, to be um, expanded and, and modified so that we're kind of supercharging the immune system in a faster, more effective way than just letting the body do it. And then we give those, those, those uh, expanded white blood cells back to the back to the patient and now they've already been primed by that vaccine so we've improved uh the ability and the strength of our army to go and fight that cancer Um, and that's the step that not a lot of companies have taken before but that seems to be where their where their success comes from Uh, and and, and to me uh, i'm not an immunologist i'm far from it but but medically that that would make sense to me why they why they clearly have improved outcomes compared to some of their um, some of the other alternatives when on the autologous vaccine front. Um, but yeah, I think, I think the work that Elias is doing is encouraging. They, they chose to tackle osteosarcoma, which is a bone cancer. Um, and, and, and so far things are pointed in the right direction for them. And I know they're, they're looking at other tumor types too. Um, we've talked a lot about lymphoma already. I think everybody wants to tackle lymphoma because it's so common um, and, and it's a fairly treatable condition. Um, mm-hmm. And as an immune system disease, it would make sense that if we could modify the immune system, maybe we could have even more success. Right. That is amazing. Um, I had not heard the specifics about that. I'm glad you think so. I, 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 I think so, too, Audrey. I think, I, you know, the, the amazing stuff, the breakthroughs that we have, that's what makes this job fun. I, I, I'm not coming right. up with them. I, I'm not that smart, but I'm happy to participate and happy yeah. to help enroll patients to kind of prove these these brilliant ideas as, as a proof of concept and, and to bring them into the clinic, that that's really fun and amazing to me. I agree. How has this past year COVID impacted the treatment of your patients? Uh, yeah, it's a, it's the million dollar question, right? I think you'd probably get a million different answers because there's no playbook for this. Um, we, we've done the, what we think is the best we can in our hospital. Um, and we've definitely modified on the fly as the information and the rules change. Um, 
you know, simplistically, I don't know that it's affected how we treat our patients. I, I, I'm given the same drugs to the same dogs with the same diseases as I was um, before this pandemic hit. Um, and nothing about the pandemic has revolutionized the therapies that we're giving. Um, but I, I do know that it's affected our relationship with our clients. So many of our clients are just voices on a phone. Um, they've never been in our building um, from the start of their patient's care to the end. And, and that's not fair to them. Um, mm-hmm. they, they, they deserve to be a part of that process, especially as we kind of transition to the palliative and end of life parts of, of, of their pet's care. Right. Um, and that, that makes me sad. Um, our clients, all, our clients, and frankly, all, all pet owners deserve more, but, but the veterinary practices, we all needed to make these decisions so that we could still be here the next day to treat the next pet, right? There's, that's the balance. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so again, I, I don't think we've changed how we treat pets. Um, but, but I do think we've been forced to treat how our clients interact in that process, and, and hopefully, we're uh, we're going to get back to the to the to the old normal way soon. Yes, hopefully that's coming soon. So, speaking of, you know, working with some of these pet owners over the phone, um, which is difficult in end of life care. How difficult or possibly even taxing is it to work with um, patients in the end of their life and, and their owners? It's a great question. It's, um, it's arguably probably the most challenging part of our job and, and also part of the most necessary. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of our cancers are not curative and, and eventually the disease is going to outlast our, our treatments and we're not doing our job, in my opinion, if we don't prepare clients for that as early as possible. Um, sometimes things change and we have to pivot the expectation. But as a general rule, we, we know what's coming. It's what our training provided us, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, in that initial console, we, we need to set that expectation for the clients that, that hopefully it's down the road, but eventually we're going to need to have different conversations about their pet and, and its quality of life. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, uh, it, it's emotionally draining, how could how could it not be right? Um, yeah. it, it's it's hard to to do that every day. As a general rule, it's a misconception that we do it every day. Um, but we do have many instances where where we have to have euthanasia and end of life conversation with clients and, and be there to perform those duties for for our clients because they need us to. Um, I, I don't think the cancer diagnosis makes that any harder than any, than what any other veterinarian experiences every day. We all have to have that talk and whether that's in a shelter or a primary practice or in an oncology specific practice, we, we, that's a part of being a veterinarian and it's hard for everybody. Um, Mm -hmm. Or at least I've never met a veterinarian who it wasn't hard for um, on some level. And it's, it's simplistically a part of our job. So, um, I, I don't think what we go through in our practice is any different than any of my colleagues are having to deal with. Right, right. If you could give advice to someone new to the field of veterinary oncology, what would that be? That's a great question. Um, I, I, I didn't prepare for that one, did I? <laughs> So I, I'm gonna I'm gonna make some assumptions that we're talking about a, a a fledgling veterinary oncologist or versus someone who's considering the oncology field. Is yes. that fair? Okay, yes, that's fair. Um, I, I I will tell you, and and I think most would agree that you can't learn everything there is to know in three years of a residency. Mm-hmm. Um, and and those residencies are often the focus of that is the medicine, the science of of cancer therapy and, and diagnosis in pets, um, the, the human interaction uh, and, and the, the client aspect takes a lot longer to, to master. And I don't know that we ever really master that. Mm. Uh, again, this is, this is true for all veterinarians. It's not, it's not specific to oncology. But I, I think what I would tell uh, a young oncologist is um, – Keep yourself excited. Find ways to keep yourself excited because because there's a lot of diseases you see a lot. A lot of it gets a little bit redundant. Um, there's the, the, the drain on us emotionally um, with end of life conversations that we just referenced. So find something that gives you a spark 
um, in what can be a, 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 a career that's filled with a lot of bad news um, when it comes mm. to cancer, but but try to find ways to be involved in the good news and whether that's in, in trials or um, or serving on advisory boards or, or going to unique conferences um, where there are cutting edge breakthroughs, whatever it is, um, find that um, so that it can sustain you when, when, when this job gets really challenging. I love that. Keep adding tools to your tool chest that excite you and keep the, keep the position interesting for you. Right. Exactly right. Well, that is fantastic. Dr. Wright, thank you so much for so graciously being my first guest on um, the podcast Veterinary Vitals Season 2. Hopefully I will get better at interviewing folks as I go along, but I really appreciate you being my first guest. Oh, it, it was a pleasure, Audrey. I, you did great. I think your your questions were uh, fantastic. You're going to be a great host. <laughs> so. Hopefully, you so uh, hopefully your your guests are going to provide uh, more fascinating answers, and we and you build on it from here. No, this was very interesting. I appreciate it. Great, thanks for having me. That was Dr. Zachary Wright, the director of oncology at VCA Animal Diagnostic Clinic in Dallas, Texas, sharing his experience treating patients and testing new treatments for cancer. It's so encouraging to hear about the new tests and treatments that are being developed to give pet owners more time with their furry loved ones. One client of VCA Animal Diagnostic Clinic said online, our dog is being treated for cancer here. This group of veterinary professionals are a blessing for us who need support and straight answers. Thank you, Dr. Wright, for continuing in your dedication to veterinary oncology and for being such a great guest on the podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with a colleague and rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Ratings are how Apple promotes our podcast with potential new listeners, so it would help us a lot. I'm your host, Audrea Wood. Thanks for listening.